Welcome to BNB with Ellie, Biohacking and Beyond, the podcast where we dive into the incredible world of self-healing and mind-body connection using biohacking and lessons from Germanic New Medicine. Welcome everybody and thank you so much for tuning into this episode of BNB with Ellie, Biohacking and Beyond. I am insanely excited to bring to the Philippine GNM GHK community a very well-known icon in the GHK English-speaking world. She not only teaches it, but she adds her own flavor and vast implicit knowledge to the mix, which has garnered her almost celebrity status in GHK, in my humble opinion. She is my classmate in the first ever English Freya course and the first ever English Shinpo course coming up in Asia soon. And her name is Dr. Melissa Sell. Hi, Mel. Oh my goodness, hello. Thank you for that very lovely introduction. You're welcome. So Mel, please share with us your origin story, how you got started in the field of health per se, and then how you got into GNM. Yeah, so my background is I am a chiropractor and I got into the world of health through working at a chiropractic office right out of high school. I, you know, I was actually into musical theater before that, and I ended up um, going the route of, I got a job. My mom was like, you need to get a job. And I was like, okay. So I found this job working at a chiropractic office and getting into that world changed my life. I started seeing really amazing things, you know, happen with people um, that they'd start changing their lifestyle and get healthy. And it was really, it just awoken something within me. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. I am into helping people get healthy. I loved everything about it. And so I graduated chiropractic school in 2012 and began practicing right away. And so that's my background. And chiropractic is a very interesting field and it's very rich in philosophy. So the founders and developers of that profession wrote volumes and volumes of these green books. And the green books are all about innate intelligence and how the body is wise and how the educated mind has only been around for a few thousand years and how it its wisdom pales in comparison to the ancient wisdom in the body. And so part of the chiropractic philosophy is that the body is wise. The body is always doing the right thing. The body knows how to build itself. It knows how to repair itself. The body is the master chemist. It can do everything. And so that is kind of where I came from. That was like my, my roots and my foundation. And uh, I, my partner and I, we, I practice just kind of how I, was uh, trained as far as, you know, doing adjustments and helping people to uh, clean up their diet and remove toxins and kind of exercise and live this whole holistic, healthy lifestyle. And that was wonderful. And I loved it and still do love it. But there was a piece that was kind of missing for myself. And I saw with my patients that I was working with, and it had to do with more of the unseen. So, you know, if we watch someone go throughout their day, you can see them eat, put healthy food in their mouth. You can see them exercise and you can see them kind of checking all the healthy boxes, taking their supplements, but you can't always, you can't see what's going on behind the scenes. You can't see what's going on in their mind, how they're reacting, how they're thinking, how they're, you know, internalizing the stuff of their life. And so that's what um, my, you know, career in life kind of took a turn into, you know, rather than making physical adjustments to the spine, my partner and I, we started 
looking at making internal adjustments to the way that you see yourself. And we developed this course on understanding your perception based on our own personal experiences and getting into um, meditation and more awareness practices of like, what's going on back here all day long? And I just for myself, I had all sorts of anxiety and now in retrospect, unresolved conflicts and tracks and all sorts of things that weren't being addressed by the physical eat this, not that, do these exercises, do this physical stuff. It wasn't fully being addressed. But when we started looking and I started looking for myself at what I was thinking all day long and what was going on in my internal experience, that's when my relationships and patterns started to actually change. So we got really interested in teaching that to our clients and patients rather than simply, again, just like the, the list of things to do and not do. And at that time, I was I there was a part within me. I'm like, mm, I know that there's a bridge between this this internal work and the physical stuff, but I wasn't sure exactly what that bridge was. So I started kind of looking into, you know, the roots of like psychosomatic illness and things like that. And then one wonderful day, <laughs> I was listening <laughs> to a podcast about magnesium supplementation. We were giving a pre uh, presentation on magnesium um, supplementation and. Carolyn Dean, the author of The Magnesium Miracle, was being interviewed. And I'm just listening, taking notes on this podcast. And she mentions German New Medicine. And I was like, hold the phone. What is that? I've never heard of German New Medicine. And I thought that I kind of, I knew all the things, holistic, alternative health. And, um, and then I looked it up and my life was never the same. It was an immediate internal just knowing of like, whoa, this makes more sense than anything else I've ever studied, ever come across this. I was really especially drawn to the embryological aspect because in chiropractic school, that was one of the, the classes that I was just fascinated and mind blown by is like how this body kind of weaves itself together in this intricate and amazing way and how he is describing how each of the tissue layers function in a different way, depending on when they developed um, over our organismic history and how that intertwines with the brain. And I was absolutely just like blown away by it. And at that point, I was like, I think I'm going to be a part of telling everyone about this because I'm like, I don't know why everyone and their mom isn't talking about German new medicine and that all the chiropractors aren't talking about it. I'm like, what, how, how did we miss this? So that's kind of how, and that was in 2017 when I stumbled across it. And ever since then, you know, I just kind of studied it and drew out all the charts. And, and then I'm like, you know what, I need to tell people about this. And it was just a natural progression. That's amazing. And, and um, I kind of identify with you in the uh, holistic thing, like the supplement thing and the way of eating and everything. EMF is terrible for you, heavy metals and all of that. Because this is like the, the topics of interest in the biohacking world. So biohackers are non-medical, you know, they're just laymen that, that want to self-experiment and just want to try everything to live forever. And I, I do see some of your posts and you say, oh, you know, I used to tell people that this is bad and everything is bad. And we could actually cause more harm because of nocebo when we say that, oh, don't eat that, don't be in 5G and don't, you know, things of that nature. Is that something that you, you found to be true? And did you bust those myths over time? Yes, that was, I mean, I would teach seminars like huge. We'd had 200 person uh, people would come to the seminar and I would teach about how bad sugar is. And I would give and, like detailed analogies of how sugar is like 
glass in your bloodstream. And I'm like, yes, this is really going to land with people. And so did people stop eating sugar? No, they just felt terrible every time they did and felt guilty. And, you know, and so I was like, oh, I didn't realize. I mean, I was the person I'd come home on break from school and I would take everything in my parents' cupboard and their fridge and I throw it in the garbage and I'd say, this is causing cancer and this is going to make you sick and this is going to make you die early. And, you know, I thought I was doing God's work, by, by but and now I'm like, whoa, I was introducing a lot of conflict. And I myself had a ton of internal conflict as a result of learning all of this great stuff. You know, so one of the things, um, one of my huge stories as far as personal symptoms was acne. So acne was something that I dealt with as a, as a teenager and in my twenties. And I'm like, Oh, when am I ever going to get rid of this acne? And I went through all the different stages, you know, First, the conventional model is, oh, it's just bacteria on your skin. If you wash your face really good, um, and I would use astringents and rubbing alcohol and, you know, acid on my skin to like, okay, I just have to clear all the bacteria off because like I would get certain images in my mind, like the Neutrogena commercial where they show the, the dirt and bacteria getting down into the pore. And I'm like, yeah, that's how it works. And if I just scrub, it'll go away. And no, it didn't. I would still have it. And, and so then when I started working at the chiropractic office, I read this book about milk, the deadly poison. I'm like, oh, it's dairy. If I just cut dairy out and I would cut something out and it would get better for a period of time, but then it would come back even though I'm not eating the dairy. So, you know, there's another dead end. And so then I got into the gut health thing and probiotics and sauerkraut. And I was like, oh, if I just have my probiotics, if I just eat my sauerkraut every day, then, then I'll have clear skin. And again, it would like clear up for a little while and come back, <laughs> even though I'm still eating my good stuff. Then it was the, the seed oils. And I was like, oh, it's rancid oils. It's every time I eat out at a restaurant, the rancid oils, they're inflammatory. And so they inflame my gut and that causes my skin to be inflamed. So every time I ate out at a restaurant, I would get a breakout. And I was you know, certain that that's what it was. And even when I wouldn't eat out, then I'd get a break. It would just boggle my mind. And then the blessed day that I saw <laughs> the chart and saw the dermis and understood that feeling attacked or feeling soiled, that's the conflict behind acne. And it all came, became so clear. I was like, oh, when I learned about seed oils, I felt soiled. I felt, ooh, you know, dirtied every time I would eat them. And so that is what created this breakout cycle. And so now seeing, all, having, I went through every single progression. Now I see the whole entire time it's feeling attacked. It's feeling soiled. It's feeling defiled. It's feeling ugly. You know, I'd get a zit and then I'd, you know, have a conflict about this and I get one right next to it. And it's like, no, it's so clear. So that for me was a huge one of noticing how an idea about food. So I learned, cause not everybody who, you know, eats seed oils has chronic acne, you know, it's not a one-to-one. -one. And that's one of the things too, that really landed with me about this paradigm is that what about the exceptions? How can people be, you know, eating sugar and not have you know, chronic inflammation or chronic pain. If eating sugar causes inflammation, everyone should have it. Everybody who's eating this should have this. That is scientific. That makes sense. But again, you know, with the inflammatory oils, people are eating them and not having acne because that's not a one-to-one. -one, that's just one of a million theories. And now I see how unscientific and based on statistics, and it's not reliable. Whereas this system 
is so specific and so mathematical and reliable, it should be the foundation of what anybody anywhere is doing with health. And that just makes sense to me. Exactly. And and you could also look at it the other way. There are these biohackers and health gurus and health coaches, and they're dropping like flies, you know, because of cardiac arrest and uh, cancer. Oh, but you're so, but you're fit as a fiddle. Why do you have breast cancer and things of that nature? And somebody, you know, recently just passed away in the Philippines who was an icon of the, of the anti-vax um, freedom fighting uh, movement. And of course he's not vaxxed, right? But then they're like, did he have a heart condition? He passed away from a massive heart attack and he was imprisoned, wrongly imprisoned. And then he was given notice that he would leave earlier than expected. So that's conflict resolution. And all of these theories now about, oh, he was murdered in the cell and all of that. Oh, did he have a heart condition? But he exercises and he does keto and everything. And then on the other end, oh, but he does keto. Maybe that's why. Yes. And that was something also within that field, you know, I thought that I knew. And that's, you know, one of the things is I... Um, through my personal evolution, have come out of a lot of dogmatic thinking. Um, you know, I come from like a religious background, and I and I was very religious about my my chiropractic and health philosophy. I was like, this is the way that it is, and I was very rigid. And so to come out of that to see, you know, what I thought it was absolutely right, and I've learned things now that have you know adjusted my views. And that was something that was, it was very uh, unsettling when one of my health icons, one of my teachers and mentors, you know, that out of nowhere would, you know, oh, they've got brain cancer or they've got, you know, like you said, a, a drop of a heart attack or something. And it's like, hold on, they're, the, they're doing all of the things that I teach. And this is what I say, this, if you do these things, you won't get this disease. If you stop eating this, you won't get cancer. You won't have you know, these conditions. And that was very destabilizing for my foundation, being someone who thought I knew. But in retrospect, it's like, mm, we are missing a humongous, enormous <laughs> piece of the puzzle. And and I and Dr. Homer's discoveries really do give us the answers for why those situations took place. And they all are, make biological sense. And, and that's where, you know, coming past and why I feel like we had to go through those, you know, we had to go through that journey, had to go through that evolution in order to see, you know, um, the different sides of these, these inside the paradigm, outside the paradigm, blowing our mind and getting to the point where it's like, okay, there's more to the story. And what I love about your work is that you love to delve into other, you know, apply your knowledge and apply all that you know, because you have this background in embryology and chiropractic and all of that, and you apply it to that. And then you also give ways on how to resolve the conflict and how to look at it in different ways. And I love that about you. This is something that I think a lot of people are attracted to you about, especially us who are educators in training in GHK. We're in that box. And that's why I follow your work. Yeah. The, the, you know, the application of the ideas, and that's the thing is like, you have this firm foundation, you need the firm foundation of the five biological laws, but when it comes to, you know, human experience, and that's where, you know, I have to look at what's my own experience been. And that's what I teach. I teach things that I have found helpful for breaking through 
um, self-devaluation or rigid uh, dogmatic ideas and identity conflicts. And it's like, ooh, I, I thought about things in a certain way when I was wrapped up in a conflict. And it really is all about finding, you know, a new perspective because sometimes conflicts, you know, the, the best resolution is a practical resolution. Can we change the environment? Can we simply you know, replace what was lost? Can we get out of the situation and into a better one? And that's the ideal. And that would be amazing when it's possible. But there are situations where I can't make that physical shift for whatever reason, for legal reasons. Um, you know, I, I love to tell the story of the woman I worked with who, you know, she had a major separation conflict because she got a divorce. You know, she was happy about the divorce, but she had a child. And so having a child, with a person you're divorced from, there's legal issues. And so while in a perfect world, her child would never have to see the ex and they could just go on their merry way and she could, you know, hold her baby close and the baby would never have to, you know, leave and go with um, this person that she kind of deemed, you know, emotionally not great to be around. But the law made it so that she, you know, her child periodically would have to leave her, be separated from her and be in an environment that she, you know, couldn't completely control. And that was the root of this major separation conflict. So it's like, okay, you can't, you, you legally, physically cannot change the dynamic here. So therefore you have to change the way that you are thinking and feeling and reacting to every little track and trigger around that situation. And so that's what she did. And she was able to resolve uh, psoriasis, a major psoriasis that was just like chronic. And she did all the things. She was like a perfect kind of biohacking example of like the red light and the detox and the early morning sunlight and all of, you know, the you know, coffee enemas and let's try. <laughs> it could be anything. So she did. She checked every one of those boxes. And still the symptom remained because the conflict remained. She was still in conflict around the separation. And once she pinpointed her tracks and how she was relating to it and how, you know, every time there was a text, every time there was, you know, um, news about the child having, she would see, oh, it's my reaction right now. It's how I am, you know, going through and worst case scenario and my automatic pre-program reactions to the separation. And she was able to change that through awareness, through seeing, through understanding what her biology, how it was intelligently, perfectly responding to the situation. And with that totality, she was able to change it and, and resolve her conflict so that it didn't have to be a track for her. But, you know, and that's where, again, we have to be open to whatever works for that person. We have to see, you know, if we can't change it in the most practical way, what's the, the next best solution? Right. And I do the same thing as a trauma therapist. I always look at that. The, the, the very causal therapy is the very best. The first thing you do is just like try to reframe it, get into stoicism, logotherapy and all of that stuff. But, you know, there, there are psyches that are extra sensitive that, that just can't get it. You know, they're just too deep in their conflicts and there's so much fear around it, too. And it's just mishmash of all these emotions that they do need support. They do need help. There has to be some sort of way to support oneself, to self-regulate. And we do it for life preservation. That's something that I love your work. I love what you do. I really resonate with it. Thank you. And yeah, I mean, I just, I do what makes sense. Again, what has been beneficial for me, the ideas, the perspectives, the paradigms that, you know, I have found, and it's all about, for me, it's all about freedom. It's all about, does this bring me a sense of peace and freedom? And when there's an idea that 
you know, comes along and it's like, Ooh, this makes me feel more tense and more concerned and more worried. It's like, mm, that, that is not the, the way I don't want to, I don't want to interact with that information in that particular way. And so my whole thing is kind of teaching people how to find that sense of freedom within themselves and knowing that there's always a solution. There's always a different way I could be looking at this. Am I open enough to see that? Can I kind of break down those barriers of how I've always done it? You know, that's one of the biggest things. And that's, you know, that's what the nervous system loves. The ner nervous system loves, this is how we've always done it. This is what we've done up until this point, And we have survived. We're not happy. <laughs> we are suffering, but uh, that's not the priority. The priority is simply survival when it comes to the ancient biology. And so we have to take that understanding that our ancient biology is very averse to change. It's going to do you know, what works, even if what works doesn't feel the best. And so I have to recognize that and realize that better is available to me. There's a different way that I could be navigating my life circumstances, that I could chill out, <laughs> that I can not take this so seriously. You you know, and I do think that sometimes when when we do take oh, our our ideologies and our problems, our conflicts super seriously, when we're super identified with them, you know, often we will go to the grave with them. <laughs> it's it's hard to to break away from um, some of that rigidity. And I'm very I feel very grateful that so many times that my ideas that I thought were so true and I was so accurate you know, they proved to be wrong. And so my, that idea is like, maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe this conclusion, this scary or bad or depressing conclusion I'm coming to, maybe I'm wrong about that. Just introducing a little bit of uncertainty that the problem really is as bad and serious as I may have thought it was. And, and that again, lightening, it lightens the load and also bringing humor. You know, I love when Helmut describes a conflict is resolved when it can't happen again, or when you can laugh about it. And so that's, often one of my strategies when um, teaching and helping people, it's like, hey, can we laugh about this? Can we lighten this? How can you take this less seriously? And that's a very fun method for, um, for seeing where can we pull the pieces, pull the thread of this conflict and unravel it and just loosen up. You know, I call um, sometimes what I, what I do with people is like chill therapy. <laughs> it's like, can we get you to chill out about this? Can you just relax and drop this and tell a different story? And so I, you know, I have fun with it, you know, because taking it too seriously and being too, you know, regimented and being, you know, really hardcore about it. I just don't think that that's very helpful. You know what I mean? If that was like the best way to go about it, and if that yielded the, the best results, you know, it's like, all right, well, we have to be very serious. And it's like, I just don't think that that yields the best results. I think being more playful and real and flexible in how you apply this knowledge. Um, and a lot of people, they, they do get a little, you know, kind of turned off or afraid because of, you know, the intensity with which this is presented. And I get the intensity. So I like, I get both sides of it. I get that like Dr. Hammer and kind of the, the pure knowledge is very valuable and we don't want to water it down and we don't want to distort it because that's what, Kind of his opponents have tried to do too, because yeah. if people knew about this, if people really got this this understanding, everything would change. Like what is it? Ninety eight percent of medicine as we know it would just go away. We'd yes. still need you know the two percent for you know intense emergency situations, but people would be able to manage their own health, which is their birthright. You know, but as things go and people take advantage of our ignorance. They take advantage of the fact that we don't know this. So it is very important for the pure 
um, information to be undiluted and to, you know, be delivered to the people. But as far as the application, I feel like there's a lot more flexibility in how we can apply it to our lives. I love that. In my community, I tell them, have a robust psyche and be unfuckwithable. So this is a term from the biohacking field from Vishen Lakani of Mind Valley. Just say, fuck this, you know, and just drop it. And then it won't have to land and you don't have to, uh, your tissues don't have to adapt. Yeah, beautiful. I, yeah, I love the term um, anti-fragile. It's from a book yes. from, um, yeah, uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb is the, the name of the book is anti-fragile. And that's the whole concept of like that trauma, you know, and that's the thing is trauma doesn't ruin you. Trauma makes you stronger. Trauma gives you this kind of like these obstacles in your life so that because every time you go through a biological program, you become wiser, you become more adapted to that environment. You're supposed to have something happen, learn the lesson and then grow from it and then have another you know obstacle grow from that. And so it should be this upward trajectory. Often though, we do get stuck in loops and we want to get out of those loops and with the awareness and with that kind of changing your energy and have, you know, developing that unfuckwithable energy of that, you know what, I'm choosing to use this rather than be, you know, it using me and it being on top of me, I'm going to use it and I'm going to go on top of it. So it's kind of like this judo move. So it's like a trauma came at me and it wanted to take me down, but I used that energy and I transmuted it. And so just giving yourself and just knowing that that's always possible, that I can transmute anything that's happened to me for my greatest benefit, for my good, so I can grow and that I can, you know, teach others and model it for other people. And that's often where people find that conviction and the energy to get through something is like, oh, if I get through this, I can help someone else. And people love, you know, that feeling of sharing, you know, their champion story, you know, there are people love stories of overcoming. They love when a person, you know, like the story of Anita Morjani, people love to hear about someone who came right to the end, right to the brink. And everyone thought she was done. And she had this amazing experience that if you actually listen to her story, it sounds like she went into like a flying constellation yes. and she was able to kind of like zoom out so big and get the solution to her major self-devaluation that she came back. And it's like, people love that. And so knowing that, you know, you can use your own trauma, tragedy, um, adversity for that sharing with other people. I mean, that could be your legacy. I love that, Mel, because as a trauma therapist, you know, a lot of people come to me and say, oh, this happened to me and I blame that trauma for my difficulties. I blame this person for my difficulties. But when we transcend that and we look at constellations and we look at, um, well, you, your higher self, oh my gosh, I'm getting woo woo. Your higher self kind of chose the people and the life situations that you were born with, you're born into in order to get that constellation, in order to find your talent or your gifts for your mission, then you would see them as sort of a blessing. Of course, I'm not condoning, you know, child abuse, sexual abuse and all of that. But, you know, there's rhyme and reason, even in the chaos, there's still order in the disorder somehow. And we, I look at it as, hey, you know, you have this big heart constellation. You want to serve others and everything because you felt double overwhelmed when you were a child. And this gave you that constellation that made you this person that wants to help everybody. And that's amazing. And there are so many people with big hearts that have changed the world. Or maybe you have like what you said, a flying constellation. This is like the Imagineers. They're the ones that have this imagination and they find solutions before the problem even comes. And 
wow, that's such a blessing. But of course, if you know, of course, if they're heavily scaled and everything, it becomes a little bit tricky. But still to see constellations as a gift brought about by trauma, because it's the only way, like what you said, it's the only way we can really improve that it's kind of in, in biohacking, we call it hermesis. It's a stress that's put on the body in order for the body to bring out all of its good juices so that it can prevail and it can survive. Yeah. And I think in a cosmic sense, and like you just look at, you know, yes, would it be, it would be ideal for us all to be living in these beautiful, you know, like the, the Germanic, the Germanisha, it is, it's all about these, this knit, close knit communities of people living in harmony with nature. That's one of the things I, I love about the, the historic nature of the Germanisha Hayakunda is, is about the the brotherhood the sisterhood the kinship the family this just beautiful support system and this shared holy healing knowledge that they had the ancient germanic peoples they you know lived in harmony with nature they didn't use money they never loaned money for interest they just uh, they had no interest in in you know, big cities and like the Romans would come in and they'd say, Hey, don't you want to trade for this money? And don't you want to come to our cities? And they're like, no, we're good. We're happy here. We're all integrated and we're living in this beautiful, harmonious way. Um, you know, and we've gotten just so far from that. And that's what this is. You know, we have to kind of do that full circle thing though, because what, what's a story, what's a book, what's a movie without <laughs> some drama where this beautiful, <laughs> wonderful, organic system, uh, where it's all working in harmony. If it just was like that forever, we're like, okay, this, this, this is a great, this is a beautiful, wholesome movie. <laughs> um, where's, where's the spice? Where's the drama? Where's the conflict? Where are the constellations? You know? And so now we're at this point where we see just kind of the destruction of this harmo uh, harmonious way of living. And now we want to get back to it, you know? So like here, I, <laughs> I live, I'm, I'm starting, I've got like a mini ranch situation. We've got a cow, we've yes. got four ducks. We just went to visit our donkey um, that we just got. So we are like, you know, we're trying to get back to that wonderful, wholesome, yeah. you know, self-sustaining farm life. And so many people are because we see, oh, city life is one thing, um, but it doesn't yield kind of healthy, as healthy, integrated people as did, you know, living off the land and being more in tune with nature and more kind of knowing everyone in your community, like dropping your children off with strangers, we've learned isn't that great of an idea. And <laughs> it doesn't do good things for the baby to be separated from its mother, you know, right away. And we've learned that lesson. And I, I think that now people are ready for, you know, we've kind of, we're ready for coming back to like how our biology developed in these smaller, you know, communities where everyone shares the same values. Um, and I think it's, a, it's kind of, it's, it's a beautiful thing to kind of go full circle. Wow. Thank you so much. And I know buttercup is the cutest thing in the world. I see her in your posts, you know, when you said that, and this is, this is the land called Germania, right? Or something like that. Yeah. And it, it comes so full circle for me hearing you say that because in 2010, I landed in this place called Oroville. So apparently there are these utopian cities already that are that are kind of like Germania and it's off grid and they're completely sustainable. They use solar uh, solar power 
uh, toilet composting, permaculture, and all of that. And it's a whole community. And it was it's called the City of Dawn. And it was established in 1968 with soil from about 160 countries. So it's about unity and it's about all of that coming together. And there are Germans and French and Japanese. There are very little Filipinos. I, I don't know. I think Filipinos don't like Indian food. But uh, there's Americans and, you know, all living together and I lived here I was called here it, it's based on the teachings of Sri Aurobindo who taught about the supramental the higher self the yoga the life as yoga and his spiritual partner Mira Alfas was a French lady and and she put it up in uh, posthumously and, and now it's a thriving city with 3,000 plus inhabitants and it's like its own country and for me in 2010 I just came from Vancouver I just left Vancouver and I went to India and I'm like, what the heck am I doing here? I didn't know. But you know, in retrospect, when you connect the dots, it now makes super sense and it matches that vision of Germania. I mean, it's like the future of, of humanity. Wow, that's beautiful. That's amazing. How interesting. <laughs> I didn't even know this place existed. But yeah, I know that people are you know, creating that and that they have that vision um, to live in, in a way that makes sense. Because when you just look at the way people are living, it doesn't make sense. It's not integrated. It's not in tune with our biological way of being. And that's really what this 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 amazing work of Dr. Hammer, the biologic, doing what makes sense for life. <laughs> it's like what we, uh, the system we have is illogical. It creates illness. It is perfectly designed to rip us away from our nature from the, the moment a child is conceived. I mean, they've even hijacked the conception process through, you know, artificial um, insemination and all of the things that we're doing, all the kind of like weird science experiments of even bringing life into the world. And then every stage of the process is micromanaged and uh, conflict is introduced through all of the testing and all of the ultrasounds and then the birth process itself. It's like, we are, again, it's illogical. It's indoctrinating us into this system that has to cause conflicts because it's hard to be a biological organism in a hospital, you know, where everything is looked at as an emergency. We're separating, we're cutting cords, we're washing babies, we're putting hats on their heads so their moms can't connect fully and smell them, not to mention the C-sections. It's like, that is really where, that's my biggest passion is to share this with the young women, the young mothers, so that they understand that every little thing that happens is setting up their child either for this peaceful, connected, regulated, uh, calm nervous system where they can trust the world that they're in, or they feel disconnected, distrustful, and they have this underlying sense. So many young people today, you just talked to, and they, so many have anxiety. They just have this distrust of everyone and everything. And then it's like, okay, well, how are you brought in? Like what was going on what, during your gestation, during your, you know, your first year of life, like when you were born, if you were taken away from your mother, you, you know, there is a distrust of everyone. <laughs> it's like, this place isn't safe. And so getting back to creating these, these safe bonds between the mother and the baby. And that is, it's all biological. I mean, in the biological way, you wouldn't be separated from your mother up until age three, 
ever. <laughs> you would just be with her. You kind of be one unit until, you know, you're able to, to feed yourself and do more things on your own. And then naturally you'd want that separation, but so many children because of society and the way things are, are just forcibly separated from their home, from their safety. And they go their whole life with these conflicts and constellations because of, and it, and it, parents are well-meaning. Nobody ever means to give their child a constellation or a major conflict. Everyone's doing the best that they can, given the information and the resources available to them. But again, the, the books that we read and the information has said, yeah, it's fine to like let your baby cry in the other room. And they're like, oh, these are the experts. You know, They wouldn't tell me something that was wrong. And so our ignorance and innocence um, and our lack of biological understanding for ourselves and outsourcing to experts really has been our downfall. And that is what has caused this big mess of like people, you know, handing their children over to doctors to inject them with who knows what and hold them down and do all sorts of, you know, heinous procedures um, under the guise of, oh, this is healthier, this is clean. And people are really waking up to that. And uh, yeah, the more that you understand the GHK, the more you see, ooh, we wouldn't do that. We would, we'd stop doing that. We definitely wouldn't do that anymore. That doesn't make any sense. And so we're really just cutting out all of this um, modern intervention that has only caused more trauma and separation and fear in children. That's right. And I'm, lately I've been obsessed following this IG account and I'm not sure if you know, it's, it's badass birth mother. And she has oh, like, I think I've seen her. yeah. Oh my gosh. And it's all just water birthing and it's all free birthing and it's even breech babies are, are natural birth. And it's beautiful with all the blood and all the guck and all of that. I just think I'm obsessed with it. It's just so beautiful. Nature is just a miracle in itself. And that's the way that we, we need to birth. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And I love what you said about the, the parents and their constellations. And I know through you through because I'm enrolled in your language of adaptation course, and you refer a lot to recall healing. And I looked into the book and I, I saw Project Purpose and it says there that the psychological conflicts of the parents become the biological conflicts of the baby. And so we are, we should explore that. So let me know what, what are your thoughts on that? What are, what are the things that you found fascinating about it? Oh, everything I found very fascinating about um, Gilbert's, uh, Gilbert Reynaud and his work of looking at more than just like what happened right before the conflict? We want to look at what happened during your gestation. What was going on with your parents before they even conceived you? And then what was the conception like? What was, you know, those nine months of your gestation? And then how did you come into the world in that the everything has been programmed by that nervous system each step of the way? Um, to the point that like when your parents have unresolved stuff and they come together and they make you that it makes sense biologically, even that your biology would be an answer, would be a solution to stuff that's unresolved within them. And that, you know, really just makes sense to me. And then when you look at people's lives and you um, start asking different questions and you start seeing how is this a solution? How is what this child is dealing with a solution to something that we ha just haven't put those pieces together yet? And the family tree, I, I think, is very important to look at. And at first, you know, um, and I do think that with Dr. Homer's work is because the family tree and going beyond like that one individual's experience, it's harder to quantify that in a systematic way. Um, and so, but 
when you bring that into the knowledge of the five biological laws and you bring that together to look at one person, their life, they didn't just block, they didn't just come down here, you know, and, and just materialize. They came through a lineage. They came through people with conflicts who came together for various reasons. And sometimes the child, you know, is, is conceived to keep someone home. Sometimes the child is conceived to, um, you know, to keep the relationship together or to, you know, um, was conceived uh, on accident, you know, then that matters. Like whether the child was wanted, uh, when you think about something like a self-devaluation conflict a feeling like, oh, I'm not good or I'm not needed in this world. Like, well, were you wanted? Were you, when you were conceived, what was the first reaction? Um, and how that is even programmed into how you react in your life. And sometimes bringing this um, and the, one of the big takeaways from the recall healing work, and I've just begun um, in the last um, nine months or so really exploring it, is, you know, by getting the, the story out of the darkness and getting the story of the ancestor that suffered, that went through something that was never talked about. And that is one of the hallmarks of a biological conflict is the isolation aspect of like, I can't tell anybody about this. I can't talk about this. This is unspeakable. Gilbert um, in his seminars will say like, find the secret, you know, like what is the dark, scary, embarrassing, dirty secret that nobody talks about in this family. And when that is brought out into the light, often, you know, kids will have their, whatever they're dealing with will get resolved when somebody is able to voice and speak about the stuff that has been unspoken for so many years, or someone wasn't able to acknowledge. And so it's the acknowledgement. Um, he the way that he describes it about the quantum field, even it's like, when you look at it, it has to change. If we don't look at it, it repeats on a pattern and it keeps coming up in a cycle. And that's something very interesting too with recall healing is, you know, when you, when a symptom develops, you know, um, and if you are having trouble finding like, oh, I can't find, you know, I, I see that maybe this was the trigger for it, but was that the conflict? You know, you look back in your timeline, you divide your age in half or then you divide it in half again and you keep going back and inevitably you'll find something that kind of like planted the seed for this conflict to kind of come out in your life at a later time. And I've just seen that it proves accurate. <laughs> and that's always my thing is like, okay, this is a cool idea. This, you know, makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, does it work in practice? And I'm finding that like, there's always a deeper story deeper than, oh, it just came out. You know, I just had this flare up of this, uh, you know, this rash or this pain. And it's like, okay, well, is it really about what's happening now? Or was it something that happened way, way back, even during your gestation, like the third month of your gestation? Is that when this program, um, got initiated in your, in your psyche and that now it's just coming out because it was triggered at the right time. So it's been very, very interesting to explore his, um, experiences and findings and the connections. And so it's, it's a very cool, uh, way to take the knowledge of the five biological laws and find more tools for application. I love it because um, I'm a childhood trauma therapist. So I look, I have adults who are close to 60 and everything. We look at their childhood, what happened the first seven years and, you know, before puberty and all of that, because of, you know, we know about Dr. Hammer's work and all, but, but what I really loved about um, Gilbert Renault's work is I have a niece who had leukemia at seven months and you would look at leukemia as the, the resolution to a, a self-devaluation, right? So, but she's seven months. 
why, how did she even know what self-evaluation is and, you know, things of that nature just seemed to spring up, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, she had all of these um, black and blues and everything. Of course, my, you know, she went through chemo and everything. But, you know, it's something that if you just look at the pure work of Dr. Hammer, you wouldn't really know where it came from. For, for toddlers, there, there can be, like there's another sibling that has more attention and, you know, mom is no longer loving me anymore. So I, and then mom finally said, oh, I love you just as much. And boom, leukemia comes, right? But for a seven month old, how did that happen? And when I read that, it, it's a self-devaluation possibly of the mother because she was actually born out of IVF because she, my, my sister could not conceive. And the father, when in reading Recall Healing, it said, it said something about, I'm not able to take care of my loved one, something like that. And that may have been the thought seed or thought form of the father. And it came mm -hmm. together and then, you know, the biological conflict, the child had to resolve that part. And it's amazing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's just, so beautiful. So thank you so much for bringing attention to that. But my, my question to you, Mel, is if you don't know your, your family tree, like for me, I, I have no idea how to find out about my ancestors. I have zero idea. I only know my family and that's it. Can we still use recall healing or biogenealogy to find conflicts and uh, healing throughout? That's a great question. I mean, I, I personally don't know a ton about mine either. Um, and so I think like with your own intuition and kind of like just call and, and it would maybe be considered more a little woo woo energy work of like, you know, if there is something, you know, that's coming up in my life that seems like unexplainable by my own life circumstances, like what could it be? I think just like through creativity, I mean, it, it all exists in the energetic field, you know, like in the quantum realm, all of that whole story is available to you in some way. And so I think that, you know, kind of enhancing that intuitive capacity to have insights and to make those connections and to, you know, and seeing other people's stories too, often, you know, in in like group work where people hear other people's stories, something, you know, you may not need to hear the story, the story of your family. You might need to hear just someone else's story that's similar and something, some nugget in that will land for you. And so if there's something you need to see, so that's how I, and even with people who are like, oh, I don't know. I do not know my conflict. I have no idea. I have no memories of my childhood. I've got lots of separation conflicts I, and they start kind of getting panicked or worried that I'm not going to be able to resolve my conflict. I would, I would address the familial ancestral stuff in the same way that I address that, which is open your intuition quiet your mind. If there's something you need to see, your psyche, your subconscious mind knows how to deliver it to you. You know, haven't you ever had just a random flash or an insight or an inspiration? Um, and, and that's the thing too, even about conflict resolution is it's not like if I just squeeze my brain together, and this is where we get into the realm of like, oh, getting too, you know, psychological about it. Because conflicts really are, they're kind of they just happen. Conflict resolution just happens. It's like an intuitive, innate thing that occurs. Um, and it's almost like you can't squeeze and like work too hard for it. You have to open up and, and let the solution fall in. And so that's one of the things that I encourage people to do is just create that space of opening. You know, it's like the analogy of like, oh, if I'm, you know, like an old school telephone, if I'm calling and I'm saying, I need a resolution, what's my solution? I need to figure this out. And you're calling, calling, calling. And the other line can't get through. You have to hang up the phone. It's like, okay, you know what you're looking for. You're looking for, you know, the root of this separation or this indigestible morsel. And you haven't, you know, you can't intellectually figure it out. 
hang up the phone, you know, spend time in silence, spend time in nature and quiet and just, you know, be open to the solution, the insight, the memory, the thing that you need to remember going into the feeling. There's so many things that you can do. So never, and that's the thing, if you find yourself feeling stuck, if you find yourself feeling despair or frustration, you're on the wrong path, <laughs> you know, like lighten up, know that even if I can't see it, the solution is available. Even if I don't know and don't have connections to those people, if there's something I need to see about this story, it's going to be revealed to me. And that's a big thing too, is like overcoming the doubt and the fear. And Gilbert does emphasize that as helping a person to overcome the doubt that I can figure this out or that I can heal because it is often that, that doubt and that negative expectation that because I haven't fixed it yet, because I haven't resolved it yet, because I haven't figured it out yet, it can't happen. Mm -hmm. And removing that idea that it can't happen, it just hasn't happened yet. And always being open each day, just seek to see one more thing about yourself, connect one more dot, have one more insight, you know, and even if that's just um, noticing your resistance, noticing the frustrations that come up, even that is part of kind of deconstructing this force of conflict in your life, just unraveling it a little bit at a time. Um, and so that's, that's how I approach, you know, if you, if you don't know, it's fine, you know, it's not a big deal, <laughs> you know, that's, that's, absolutely okay. Um, if you, if there's a story in your mind that, oh, that means I can't figure this out because I don't know this information, throw that idea out. Because if it drags you down, if it brings, if it makes you feel worse after hearing it, oh, some people resolve their conflicts by knowing their family tree. And you're like, I don't know my family tree. I can't figure my life conflicts out. No, forget it. You don't need it then. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You're such a breath of fresh air. I, it's so amazing. I'm sure a lot of people will now have a lot of confidence in themselves that they'll be able to find it because it's within them. The answer is within them. The subconscious knows all the answers that you need in this lifetime. So Mel, I know you do consultations and I know a lot of people would love to line up and do consultations with you. What are some of the great big stories, GNM success stories that, that you can share with us? Yeah, a lot with uh, skin. So skin, that seems to be one of the ones that I've seen great success with. Um, I did just put out a podcast of someone who resolved a, another psoriasis case and she, you know, uh, she worked on it. And again, it's like when it lands for you, you can know about GNM and we can like do the session. It's like, but it's got to really like sink in to your, she was in her closet one day when it finally sunk into her psyche that it's like, oh, who I was and what was happening then can't happen now. And so we had our session like months and months before she had the major resolution to her conflict. And so, um, yeah, so skin things, acne, um, psoriasis, eczema, those are the ones I've seen wonderful results with period pain. Um, so cyclical for me, it's like, it's the things that I'm doing all the time. It's my reactions and re-engineering your reactions to, you know, the, the tracks around your partnership, your sexuality. So that's been really successful with women with, um, with period discomfort, um, chronic physical pain, you know, and that was like a huge thing for me coming from the chiropractic background is like, oh, I just like would, if I, you know, it could adjust you. I thought that that would fix everything, but people would still have their pain. I remember a particular woman I worked with, her shoulder was just frozen. 
And we tried all of these things, all this physical stuff. And in retrospect, I'm like, oh, I wish I would have asked her about her relationship with her <laughs> yeah. partner because it was like her dominant side. And I'm like, oh, that could have, you know, yielded such different results for her because it wasn't a physical thing. And so, yes, I'm um, seeing people with, you know, chronic physical pain or arthritis um, that when you start to see because self-devaluation for me, that's one of those ones that just pervades everything. And when you have self-devaluation, you tend to see everything through the lens of self-devaluation. Um, bite conflicts, I've seen great results with bite conflicts, chronic sinus issues. There's a woman I worked with and she had a chronic sinus issue. And when we got to the core of it, it had to do with uh, suspicions about her husband. And her husband, I, I he, you know, she just kind of described him as a little bit of a more flirtatious man, but she would make little jokes when he would come home every day um, about like, oh, like, you know, who are you, you know, hanging out? And so it was always like the sniffing out, you know, like trying to smell <laughs> like the, and, and again, she, it was interesting because she knew that he wasn't being unfaithful to her, but she was keeping around that kind of little attitude she had about her suspicions. And so it was like, okay, can you drop that? And so she practiced, you know, just dropping this. And I think the, you know, the information I hadn't taken the Freya course at that oh, point, yes. when I okay. <laughs> that would have been really good stuff for her to, to start to see um, those masculine feminine patterns and how she was interacting with him. And so um, great results with, yeah, with, with the chronic stink and sinus conflicts, digestive. Oh my goodness. When people have digestive things and start seeing the tracks around their indigestible morsel conflict, it really is. It's so beautiful. And for me, the, the goal really, you know, cause as far as unraveling and getting to the conflict, you know, most of the time we're just working in your reaction to your tracks and you understanding like the big picture of this. And when it finally lands for you and you get to that, you know, that big picture resolution, um, you know, that's not something you can force, you know, like we, it's never a force. It's always about let's cultivate, let's cultivate an environment of awareness where I'm paying more attention, where I'm seeing how I'm reacting and how my body's responding to environments and people and thoughts. And can I just draw these connections? And, um, and so my, really the success for me, isn't when a person's like, Oh, all my symptoms are, are gone. It's like, what I saw myself, I saw myself react. I made the connection between how my partner was speaking and what was going on in my body. And I saw myself able to make a new choice. And because, because I know that when a person gets that, whether or not you figured out all of your tracks and you've resolved your original conflict, if you can start to make those connections and start noticing I know a person's on that right track is when they're, they're saying, I noticed, and I saw myself and I, and I made this connection. I'm like, okay, you're good. Cause if you can keep building on that skill of seeing your inner landscape and noticing how you respond to things, you're well on your way to the resolution that you're seeking and the healing that you're seeking. That's like a, a done deal. Cause the body takes care of that. You know what I mean? We don't have to micromanage the body. The body knows exactly what it's doing. You're the one who has to start noticing how you're interacting with your world and pull that thread of like, what is this actually about? You know, like, who is this actually about? When did this actually start? Is this really about, you know, my husband in my thirties, or is this about my relationship with my father when I was five? You know, it's like, who is this really about? What is this story? Like pulling those threads, that early life stuff and, and just trusting, just trust that you're going to figure it out. You know, building that confidence in the figure out ability of the situation. 
I love it. You and I were, were classmates in Freya and I found Freya to be, even if I wasn't in a, I'm not in a relationship, I'm single, but oh my gosh, it healed so many things retroactively. All of my, my past relationships, I have a sexual frustration conflict and it healed all of that. And it, it's so amazing. Now I'm very open to finding one, but how did you find it? Did it help you and Steve, your relationship? And is it also helping your clients? Are you placing the teachings of Freya also in your work with clients? Absolutely. And it, what it did was, you know, as soon as I heard some of the ways he described things, cause it's all about, you know, the biology of love. And for me, there were concepts that I knew and was totally aware of as far as like communication dynamics. But when I saw the biological implications that I didn't fully get before that class, it was like, oh, it landed big time. So with the criticism thing, so the whole idea that when a woman criticizes a man, because, and this is a, a concept that we teach in our class awareness school, it's like this concept of an internal frame of reference. Um, and I have, and I, and I have, and this has been something that my Steve and I have talked about a ton, is like when I see, I see from my point of view and my point of view only. And part of the work of awareness has been to open up and to see from other people's perspectives. And when um, Sasha taught about how, you know, like literally like the, the male sees the world physically different than the way the female sees the world. And it was like, oh, that, oh, that is why it makes so much sense now when I saw and, you know, what was uh, modeled for me growing up was like, oh, that, you know, men have no common sense or you can't see things the way I see it. And it was like, oh, yeah, men, they don't see what you're seeing. And it's like because their brains are designed to look for different things. They're specialized for, you know, bigger picture than the woman. The woman, you know, she sees her nest and her her territory of her sexuality and her children. She actually has more of a tunnel vision than the man. He can see way more than you can because he's specialized in that way. So something about hearing it in that way really allowed me to see many of the principles that I was teaching and already like understood and believed in, but saw it in the biological context. And I think that's like the huge benefit of that course is like really understanding that again, comes from the roots of the five biological laws and Hammer and learning to think biologically because, you know, we've done so much in the realm of the intellectual world and built on this intellect on the intellect, but that is nothing if we don't have the biological underpinnings. And so that for me in the course has been helpful in my own relationship and our dynamic. And then obviously like when I teach and work with people, it just allows, um, you know, it's like, this is an opinion. This is, this is biology. And that always trumps, <laughs> it trumps opinions. It trumps all the ideas in books. It's like, but does it line up with our biology? And that again is how, Dr. Hammer's work has, you know, is reorienting everything, all the different sciences, all the different realms need to reorient themselves around the biological foundation, because otherwise it's nothing, you know, like it has to be built on the biological foundation and there's good stuff, you know, in a lot of different fields, but we have to find the stuff that's in alignment with the biological yeah, it makes so much sense. I swear, <laughs> you know, I have a work with the special needs kids, like kids with an autism, Down syndrome, ADHD, and 
of course, you know, Dr. Hammer's work really applies here, but I find that it's not even the child that I do more therapy on, it's the parents. And so all of these mothers are all pegged for Freya because you need to, of course, I coach them already with Freya. I, I need to say that, you know, the, the child is mimicking, the, there are mirror neurons in the child and the and they come to the world undeveloped because they need to uh, sort of emulate the adults about and learn about the world by emulating the adults that are taking care of them. And so when you think about mimicry, they're just trying to mirror the adults in them. So when you see the behavior of the child and you kind of know, okay, what's going on? Who are, what, what kind of adults are, you know, kind of enveloping him at home? And so I do more work with the parents, I find, than with the child or, or together simultaneously. And so I have these um, mothers who are now pegged for Freya in January, Freya Asian. Great. That's wonderful. And yeah, that's, you know, I, I don't work directly with children simply because children don't want to work with me. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, uh, so when a person's like, oh, well you work with my, and I was like, no, I, I will consider talking with you. Um, because it's, it's like the child just wants to be a child and just, you know, doesn't want to go to see, you know, a coach or a therapist or whatever. It's like the child just wants to be a child. It's the parent that needs to understand and learn this stuff. And I'm sure the stuff that you do um, in your practice, have you got a lot of cool things that I'm sure a child would really greatly benefit from. But yeah, it's like when, when the mother starts to see her patterns, when she starts to see how she interacts with that child's father and the things that go on. I had an insight recently about like, you know, there every conversation you're having with your spouse um, in the home with your children, your children feel it, you know, even if they can't like hear all of, they feel the energy of all of it. And their biology is reacting to that. Um, I spoke at a women's all women's event last summer. And, uh, you know, the women are just like asking all these questions like, oh, my baby, this is a huge thing. Um, like little children with dental issues. And they're like, this baby is exclusively breastfed or these young kids that have, they don't eat any sugar. They eat totally perfectly. Um, even one of my, you know, crunchy mama friends um, from back in chiropractic school, she recently posted on Facebook and she's like, holistic mamas, what's going on? Like, what's going on with your kids' teeth? Are they, you know, do they all have good teeth? And it was like a mixed reply of some people are like, yeah, my kids. And a lot of them are like, no, we've done everything. And our kids eat perfect, no sugar. And I'm like, fight conflicts. And so even if the the child isn't having a bite conflict. They're like, this baby is like, absolutely, you know, has no conflict is never separated from me. A lot of moms also, they'll learn about the separation conflict. And they're like, my child's never separated from me. And it's like, well, who do you want to separate from? Who do you want to bite? <laughs> what do you have going on? What's unresolved? And again, the biology of the child is feeling your conflict. A baby doesn't even know that it's not you. You know what I mean? Like, that's like the whole beauty of that mother baby dynamic is like the it's like one organism you know and even as sasha mentions that in the freya course is like like a woman is a woman is a, a woman and a baby you yeah. know like uh like with, without the baby you're you're just a girl and it's like that is like the this whole um mother baby dyad it's like this beautiful thing and so the baby doesn't even think of itself as different than you so everything you've got going on every you know, criticism of your partner <laughs> that you want to bite him and you want to, you know, baby's feeling that. And so if baby's got teeth issues or, you know, is having some type of, you know, 
who do you want to separate from? Who do you want to bite, you know, and, and talk to the baby. And that is uh, one of the things that uh, Gilbert and recall healing does recommend is, you know, telling the baby, like if you were dealing with something during gestation, you know, some big trauma that happened like at month three and you've never talked about it. And we just don't think it's that big of a deal that got, if that got programmed into the baby, talk to the baby about it. Like when the baby's sleeping, say when I was three months pregnant, this is what was going on to unburden their psyche, like letting a part of them know speaking, you're just speak directly to their subconscious mind and let them know that this isn't yours. This had nothing to do with you, you know, or I was scared. Uh, someone, trying to remember, um, I can't, can't, it's not totally there, but basically it was about something that had nothing to do with the child, but um, the mother was dealing with this other conflict. And, but if, again, the baby's just going to assume it's about me. And so let the baby know this isn't about you. It never was about you. I'm so happy that you're here. You know, whatever you need to do to allow that child's psyche to get that sense of relief. And often the kids, you know, the problems will just go away. Their symptoms will just resolve simply because you spoke it. You didn't, you got it out of the darkness. You brought it into the light and unburden that child's psyche. I, I love this. And, and we're not even speaking woo-woo. We're just, you know, thinking on a biological level. We're just thinking it's not woo-woo. It's just, well, you know, we, we can, we have uh, the power to do that because the child will know. I love it. Mel, I know we've been talking, I've been taking a lot of your time and I know you have so many courses. Please, please, please let us know about each and every course so that the Philippine community can enroll and learn more from you. Yeah. So it sounds like it might be an early morning. So the next big thing we have coming up is our awareness school. So it, it starts um, I don't know when this will release, but on October 16th, it's a 10 week program. We open it four times a year and it's all about your perception. It's all about understanding the behind the scenes stuff that goes into why do I see the world in the way that I see it? So it doesn't uh, focus specifically on teaching GHK, but I find it's a beautiful compliment to anyone who's seeking to elevate their self-awareness. So I can see and pay attention to my reactions, my thoughts, the stories that I'm telling myself. Like if, you know, a lot of people understand that concept in theory, but this helps give you very practical tools for actually seeing in real time what's going on behind the scenes. It's really fun. I mean, if you um, go on my YouTube channel, watch a few videos, if you like me and Steve and the way that we talk, you'll love awareness school. So <laughs> that is, um, it's 5 p.m. Pacific time. So I think that'd be early morning for you guys. And then also there's the language of adaptation classes every Monday. I do think that's like 2 a.m. for you. So you may not be able to join live, but you can watch the, the replay of that class. And it's all about just the five biological laws. And we go into, you know, I answer questions and base the, the, the classes based on what people want to learn more of. Currently, we're going through um, the scientific chart because I'm just like, let's read the scientific chart. Let's go through point by point what is in the scientific chart and then um go through questions and application along the way. And then I do have a library of courses, the Resolve courses that Steve and I teach together. And it's all about perspective shifts. It's how can I see an identity conflict, a bite conflict, a separation conflict. We, we talk about different nuances related to every different uh, conflict type. And how can I look at this differently? How can I soften? How can I bring more awareness to how this is operating in the background? And so, um, yeah, on my website, if you just go to the courses page, you can scroll through and, you know, read through the descriptions and see if anything resonates. But my YouTube channel is a really 
great resource too. We've got years worth of videos on there. I mean, you can get a lot. I really, I love when people go through and, and go through the YouTube channel. So like the, you know, the old videos, cause there's a lot of gems in there. Yeah. Can you let us know? And then I'll include all of this in the show notes, but just let us know what, what your social media channels are, your website and your YouTube channel. Yep. It's all drmelissacell.com, YouTube, Dr. Melissa Cell, Instagram, all the same. And Ever Better Life University is? Yes. Ever Better Life University. That's where um, we, we host the class for awareness school. Yep. Okay. I'm a student there and I'm very happy that I'm there. And also Mel, I know you, I, I saw somewhere that you might have a constellations course, like a navigating constellations thing. Yes. I taught that live. Um, and I, I do have one, an online version in the works, but it's not ready yet. And so I, um, yeah, I taught a live constellation class in Vancouver with my Vancouver. They've got a wonderful GHK community in Vancouver. Um, and so if you're ever there, you know, I can connect you with some really awesome people, but, um, yeah, it's not, it's not virtual yet. Okay. All right. So my final question is always, if you had a magic wand and this magic wand gave you the most ideal world in the place, what would that world look like? Oh, biological. It would be families. It would be animals living in harmony with nature, doing things that made sense, spending your days um, living with the seasons and learning about, you know, nature and our surroundings and how to, you know, live and grow and express creativity um, through our biology and really living in that harmonious way that I feel like we were all intended to live. And, and I think every day we're getting a little closer to that. I think so. And I love that vision and it's highly possible. It's highly possible to live that vision. Thank you so much, Mel. Oh my gosh, this has been amazing. You are just amazing to listen to. And the way you explain everything is amazing, period. And I'll make sure that the Philippine community starts to follow you and learn through you as well. Thank you for being a pioneer in the Philippines and spreading this message. And I just love your energy. And thanks for having me. My pleasure. Bye, Mel. Bye. As an adjunct to this episode, I'd like to talk about the skin SBS that was mentioned by Dr. Melissa. All of this information can be found on the website learninggnm.com. She mentioned the SBS of acne, which is part of an attack conflict, feeling dirty or feeling soiled conflict. I think all of us had our bouts of acne in the past. I certainly experienced it in my 20s, particularly on the forehead area. Back then, I had the belief that my bangs were making my forehead more oily and thus caused my cystic acne just concentrated on that area. It became a vicious cycle because I would need my bangs to cover the acne. So, of course, it took a while for that to resolve. The skin is comprised of two primary layers, the epidermis or the outer skin and the corium skin, the dermis or subdermal layer. The dermis, which is relatively thick, serves the essential function of shielding the organism from injury and attacks. The corium skin primarily consists of melanocytes, responsible for producing melanin, the pigment that imparts color to the skin, hair, iris, and ciliary body of the eyes, melanin acts as an effective absorber of light, providing protection against UV radiation. Embedded within the dermis are sebaceous glands and sweat glands. Evolutionarily, the corium skin developed in conjunction with the pleura, peritoneum, and pericardium, and it originates from the mesoderm under the control of the cerebellum. An attack conflict can manifest through various means, 
such as physical assaults by individuals or animals, blows to the body or head in sports or accidents, and even medical procedures like surgery, injections, or needle biopsies. Verbal attacks, including shouting, scolding, and threatening with harsh words, often target specific areas like the face, forehead, challenging one's intelligence, or the back, akin to a figurative stab in the back. Sexist remarks, sexual accusations, or attacks on one's sexual orientation typically affect regions below the waist. Offensive language impacts the corium skin of the ear, hostile criticism, discrimination, defamation, or insults to one's integrity may trigger a generalized conflict, affecting the entire body. Skin conditions like acne or surgical scars, whether on the face or body, can evoke disfigurement conflicts corresponding biologically to the corium skin. Moreover, conflicts linked to the corium skin may relate to feelings of being unclean or soiled, stemming from experiences like encountering repulsive substances such as dirt, feces, urine, vomit, saliva, menstrual blood, sweat, or semen. Words implying dirt or gossip about a person could also provoke this conflict as a psyche does not distinguish between physical and figurative forms of dirt. Physical contact with someone deemed repulsive, like a person with an unpleasant odor or a contagious disease, can trigger a feeling-soiled conflict, especially if the individual believes in the transmissibility of infectious diseases. The fear of infection can extend to entire populations during epidemics. Starting with the DHS, Durkheimer syndrome, or the original conflict, during the conflict active phase, melanocytes within the corium skin proliferate at the site of the attack or perceived soiling, forming a compact growth or melanoma. Conventional medicine often labels this growth as skin cancer, which includes basal cell cancer and squamous cell skin cancer. From an evolutionary perspective, a melanoma represents an ancient defense mechanism aimed at creating a protective layer, effectively forming thicker skin to ward off future attacks. Excessive UV radiation from the sun can indeed harm the skin but does not directly cause skin cancer. It is the fear of skin cancer that triggers the development of a melanoma. Sunscreen lotions do not protect against cancer, but rather reduce the fear of developing skin cancer. Notably, melanomas and other skin cancers can appear on areas of the body not exposed to the sun. After conflict resolution, fungi, mycobacteria, or other bacteria come into play to remove the surplus cells. The involvement of tuberculosis bacteria leads to skin tuberculosis. During the decomposition process, the melanoma undergoes changes in texture, becoming soft and spongy. The shape also changes, growing larger and developing uneven edges and may even bleed. When the overlying epidermis breaks open, the malodorous discharge produced by the TB bacteria emerges through the skin. Now let's talk about the separation conflict. The epidermis or outer skin serves as a protective layer over the underlying corium skin, which is also known as the dermis or subdermal layer. It plays a pivotal role in sensory perception, including the senses of temperature, pressure, and touch. 
The majority of cells within the epidermis are keratinocytes, responsible for producing keratin, the primary structural component of hair and nails. The keratinocytes originate in the deepest layer of the epidermis. This also houses melanocytes, which produce pigments, although most melanocytes are located in the corium skin. Keratinocytes migrate from the basal layer through the stratum spinosum and stratum granulosum, gradually reaching the outermost stratum corneum. As they reach the skin's surface, they are shed and replaced by newer cells moving up from below. The epidermis derived from the ectoderm is under the control of the cerebral cortex. The biological conflict associated with the epidermis pertains to a separation conflict characterized by the feeling of losing physical contact. This conflict theme is closely related to the periosteum separation conflict. From an evolutionary standpoint, organs of ectodermal origin governed by the sensory, premotor sensory, and postsensory cortex are primarily tied to territorial conflicts, sexual conflicts, and separation conflicts. Newborns may experience a separation conflict when they are separated from their mother at birth, such as being placed in an incubator or put up for adoption. Separation conflicts can also occur during pregnancy due to factors like ultrasound procedures, which drown out the mother's heartbeat, causing distress for the fetus. For infants, the mother is the most critical attachment figure, and her presence helps prevent conflicts. When young children face separation conflicts, it often occurs when the mother was absent during the initial conflict or the Durkheimer syndrome, DHS, or biological conflict. Separation conflicts can also arise when children are scolded, punished, abused, when a new sibling receives more attention, when parents separate, when they are prevented from seeing friends, when they have to part with beloved objects like dolls or pets, when the mother returns to work, or when they are placed in daycare, kindergarten, or with relatives. Similarly, the elderly can experience separation conflicts when they move into nursing homes or after losing a lifelong partner or companion. Fear of losing contact with someone, like the threat of divorce, a long-distance relationship, or the fear of a loved one leaving, moving away, or passing away can trigger this conflict. Even pets may experience separation conflicts when their owner leaves, passes away, or they are placed in a kennel. Separation conflicts can also relate to wanting to separate from a person, either literally or figuratively, such as wanting to distance oneself from a difficult boss, colleague, or family member. This can be compared with a touch conflict where someone does not want to be touched, related to the myelin sheath. A separation conflict can also be associated with a desire to separate from items close to the skin, like face masks, hats, clothing, or objects one can no longer touch, like a musical instrument or personal belongings, such as an engagement ring or a favorite pillow. However, it is essential to differentiate a separation from the skin, which is a territorial loss conflict, from a separation from home. During the conflict active phase, the epidermis experiences ulceration in the areas connected to the separation conflict. These ulcerations are often microscopic and go unnoticed initially. As the conflict continues, the skin becomes dry, rough, 
flaky, pale, and cold due to reduced blood circulation. Over time, the skin can crack, leading to fissures that may bleed. For example, angular colitis shows this phenomenon as it is associated with conflicts related to the mouth surface mucosa. If an intense conflict persists for an extended period, the skin can open up at the ulcerated site as seen in leg ulcers. Conditions like ichthyosis, characterized by fine scaling akin to fish scales, indicate prolonged and intense conflict activity. A severe form of ichthyosis known as Netherton syndrome is presumed to be a genetic condition. On the scalp, flaky skin manifests as dandruff. Deep epidermal skin ulcerations can lead to hair loss or alopecia, a condition observed in both humans and animals. In cases like this, the location of bald spots may indicate that the separation conflict is related to a partner for left-handed individuals or to their mother for right-handed individuals. As the conflict resolves, hair growth is restored. During severe separation conflicts, a decrease in epidermal cell count results in reduced skin sensitivity, potentially leading to sensory paralysis. Sudden numbness, such as in an arm or leg, may be mistaken for a stroke. This sensory paralysis can briefly resurface during the epileptoid crisis. A characteristic symptom of the conflict active phase is short-term memory loss, which serves the purpose of temporarily forgetting the person who was torn from the skin by blocking the memory. In the animal world, a mother cat may no longer recognize her offspring if they are separated too early. This memory loss extends into the first part of the healing phase, or PCLA. In children, poor memory may manifest as learning difficulties and attention problems, often categorized as Attention Deficit Disorder, or ADD, today. In adults, prolonged separation conflicts can lead to dementia in line with a postsensory cortex constellation, also known as Alzheimer's. In the healing phase, during the initial part, the ulcerated skin area regenerates through cell proliferation. The skin swells, becomes red, inflamed, irritated, and itchy, and it becomes pretty sensitive to touch. Small fluid-filled edemas may appear as blisters. In the second part of the healing phase after the epileptoid crisis, the blisters dry up and the skin returns to a normal state, provided there are no conflict relapses. It's important to note that all epileptoid crises controlled from the sensory, postsensory, or premotor sensory cortex are accompanied by circulation disturbances, dizziness, brief loss of consciousness, and short disturbances of consciousness, fainting or absence, depending on the conflict's intensity. Additionally, an excessive use of glucose by brain cells may result in a drop in blood sugar levels akin to hypoglycemia related to the islet cells of the pancreas. Under a microscope, the ulcerations in a conflict active phase and the small edemas in the healing phase exhibit a ring-like configuration, strikingly resembling a Hummer focus in the corresponding brain relay. The skin healing process manifests as a skin rash, which can take on various names, such as dermatitis, eczema, hives or urticaria, measles, rubella, chickenpox, rosacea, 
lupus, psoriasis, herpes, and more. From a Germanic New Medicine perspective, these are all different expressions of the healing phase following a separation conflict. The skin rash location in unwanted separation experiences like not being allowed or not being able to embrace or hold a loved one or a pet often result in a skin rash on the inner sides of the arms, hands, fingers, or legs. Conversely, wanting to separate from someone primarily affects the outer sides of the arms, hands, and legs. Now let's talk about the bite conflict. The biological conflict associated with dentin revolves around the challenge of not being able to bite. Whether this limitation is literal, such as difficulties in manipulating food, or figurative, indicating an inability to bite or snap at an opponent. This limitation typically occurs when an individual finds themselves in a weaker position. Examples include physical situations like a smaller child facing a larger child or adult, a woman encountering a man, a smaller dog with a larger dog, or positions in the workplace where an employee faces a boss or colleague in a higher position. It can also manifest at school, within the family, or in dealings with authority figures like government officials, police, doctors, judges, or bank managers. Various situations, including discrimination, political oppression, abuse, physical, sexual, or verbal, punishments, restrictions, provocations, or being scolded, can trigger a bite conflict. This conflict is experienced as an inability to fight back or respond in defense, often described as showing one's teeth. Verbal disputes and constant arguments within a family are classic examples of bite conflicts. Furthermore, poor dental hygiene leading to unattractive teeth can also spark a dentin-related conflict. Notably, conflicts associated with the jawbones are perceived as more intense. In line with evolutionary reasoning, self-devaluation conflicts are the primary theme associated with cerebral medulla-controlled organs originating from the new mesoderm. The specific teeth affected by the bite conflict are determined by an individual's perception of the conflict situation, aligning with the specific function of the teeth. The incisors, or the front teeth, used for biting and cutting food relate to the bite conflict of not being allowed to bite, snap at someone, or show one's teeth. Canines at the corners, involved in gripping and tearing food, correspond to the bite conflict of not being allowed to snatch a person. Molars at the back, essential for crushing and chewing food, relate to the bite conflict of not being allowed to crunch or grind an opponent, figuratively chewing them up and spitting them out. Whether the jaw or teeth on the right or left side or both sides are affected depends on an individual's handedness and the nature of the conflict, whether it's mother-child or partner-related. During the conflict active phase, the loss of dentin results in cavities in the tooth. Importantly, these cavities are painless, unlike cavities in the enamel. Detection typically occurs through x-rays. However, if a cavity progresses to the pulp, the exposure of the pulp causes painful sensitivity to hot, cold, sweet, or sour foods and drinks. 
Prolonged conflict activity leading to excessive dentin loss can destroy the internal structures of the tooth, ultimately causing the tooth to break. Without a blood supply to the pulp, the tooth starts to deteriorate from the inside. Notably, tooth decay, whether in the dentin or enamel, is unrelated to sugar in foods or liquids. Having a sweet tooth doesn't necessarily lead to cavities and dental care consistency doesn't guarantee avoiding them either. In the healing phase, the cavities in the tooth are refilled with dentin callus produced by odontoblasts in the pulp, much like bone reconstruction with callus produced by bone-building osteoblasts. The soft callus eventually hardens. Notably, all organs deriving from the new mesoderm or the surplus group show their biological purpose at the end of the healing phase. After the healing process is complete, the organ or tissue becomes stronger than before, better prepared to handle a conflict of the same nature. In the jaw, the soft bone callus makes the tooth or teeth shift easily. Dental braces designed to align and straighten the teeth are most effective during this period. If a tooth cavity has an external opening, known as a tooth fistula, the callus finds its way into the mouth. Combined with food remnants and saliva, this sticky substance adheres to the surface of the teeth, contributing to the formation of tartar, a form of hardened dental plaque. Importantly, dental plaque doesn't directly cause cavities. Theories suggesting that plaque causes tooth decay and gingivitis cannot explain why these issues occur on one side of the mouth or affect specific teeth, such as the front teeth or molars. This insight from Germanic New Medicine fundamentally reevaluates the understanding of tooth diseases. During the replenishing process, the periodontium covering the tooth stretches due to swelling. This can cause a severe toothache as the squamous epithelial layer covering the periodontium is rich in sensitive nerves, similar to dental pain involving the enamel. If the cavity formed inside the tooth, the swelling might press on the pulp, causing intense pain. Prolonged pressure on the pulp can damage the tooth's nerves, eventually leading to the need for a root canal or tooth extraction. Distinct conflict. The nasal mucosa and paranasal sinuses biological conflict pertains to scent and stink conflicts aligning with its primary function. For animals, this conflict may be triggered by the scent of an approaching predator or the presence of poisonous fumes. In humans, this conflict translates into smelling trouble or potential threats such as detecting a competitor or adversary in various aspects of life, be it at work, home, school, or in a relationship. Additionally, the nasal mucosa can correspond to a sting conflict, which is experienced as a real offensive or unpleasant smell. This may occur when a specific smell is associated with danger. For instance, exposure to cigarette smoke can trigger the conflict in someone who believes that secondhand smoke causes lung cancer. In a transposed sense, a stink conflict relates to any situation perceived as this stinks or I am fed up with this and may involve dealing with an annoying person akin to a pest. It's essentially a form of separation conflict. 
The site of the nasal cavity affected is determined by an individual's handedness and the nature of the conflict. A general stink conflict affects both sides. The paranasal sinuses are symmetrical, hollow, air-filled cavities lined with a mucous membrane. They are located in several areas, including behind the eyebrows, frontal sinuses, behind the nasal cavities, sphenoid sinuses, between the eyes and nose, ethmoid sinuses, and behind the cheekbones, maxillary sinuses. These sinuses serve the purpose of moistening and warming inhaled air while producing mucus to cleanse the nasal passages. The mucosa of the paranasal sinuses is composed of squamous epithelium and originates from the ectoderm, thus being controlled by the cerebral cortex. Similar to nasal cavities, the paranasal sinuses also contain remnants of endodermal cells known as paranasal glands responsible for nasal mucus production. The paranasal sinuses are the originating site of the ectoderm, an outer embryonic germ layer. Control of the paranasal sinuses mucosa is governed by the premotor sensory cortex, which is a part of the cerebral cortex. The control has a crossover correlation from the brain to the organ, with the right sinuses mucosa being controlled from the left cortex and the left sinuses mucosa from the right cortical hemisphere. The biological conflict associated with the paranasal sinuses mirrors the conflict related to the nasal mucosa, specifically a scent or stink conflict. The biological special program of the paranasal sinuses mucosa follows the gullet mucosa sensitivity pattern, characterized by hypersensitivity during the conflict active phase and the epileptoid crisis, followed by hyposensitivity in the healing phase. During the conflict active phase, ulceration occurs in the mucosa of the paranasal sinuses in proportion to the degree and duration of the conflict activity. The purpose of the cell loss is to enhance the sense of smell and it may manifest with symptoms ranging from mild to severe pain. The side affected and whether the conflict is mother-child or partner-related is determined by an individual's handedness. A general stink conflict affects both sides and which of the paranasal sinuses is affected by the DHS is random. An active hammer focus can be observed in a CT scan with a sharp ring configuration on the right side of the premotor sensory cortex corresponding to the left paranasal sinuses linked to a scent or stink conflict. During the initial part of the healing phase, tissue loss in the paranasal sinuses is replenished through cell proliferation. This healing phase may bring about symptoms such as swelling of the sinus membrane due to edema, nasal congestion, throbbing headaches or sinus headaches, and facial pain. The pain may persist throughout the healing phase, characterized more as pressure pain rather than sensory pain. Concurrent water retention due to this syndrome exacerbates the swelling and pain. Inflammation of the sinuses is termed sinusitis. Recurring sinusitis suggests conflict relapses initiated by setting on a track established during the initial stink conflict. It's essential to note that the claim that sinusitis is caused by a viral infection is purely hypothetical.
all epileptoid crises controlled from the sensory, postsensory, or premotor sensory cortex are accompanied by circulatory issues, dizziness, brief disturbances of consciousness, or a complete loss of consciousness, fainting, or absence, contingent on the conflict's intensity. Another distinctive symptom is a drop in blood sugar caused by the brain cell's excessive use of glucose. Learn Germanic new medicine while you're healthy. This is the true way to gain health sovereignty. In biohacking, you control your biology so it doesn't control you. But first, heal your mindset. To biohacking and beyond, see you in the next episode.